Amen. Good morning. I love that line, your presence is an open door. You know, it kind of begs a question, doesn't it? Uh, the question is, to what? You think about that? What does the Bible teach us about the presence of the Lord? It teaches us that there is fullness of joy in his presence. It's an open door to that. It refers, refers to God, the Bible does, as our rock and our fortress, the one that we run into. He's a place of safety and security. He is, he is life. There's life in his presence. There's light in his presence. It's like God said, all right, you know what? I, I want to give my people the greatest possible gift that I can give them. He looked around and he said, well, that's me. And then through Jesus, he paid the price of this gift that he might give himself to us. And in him, we find absolutely everything that we're looking for in everything else, which kind of plays into what we're going to talk about this morning. So we're going to continue our study of 1 Kings this morning, and we do that by coming to 1 Kings chapter 9. And I hope you did your personal worship this week, because if you did and you read it carefully, then maybe you landed in the same place that I am in, which is that when we get to 1 Kings chapter 9, we come to the beginning of the end of the greatness of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. This is the beginning of the end for him. And I say that because the writer of this book is very clearly indicting Solomon. He's saying, this man has abandoned God, and in all of his wisdom, he's begun to trust in other things. He's left the presence in favor of other things. And I say that, and I'll give you some examples, because for example, the Bible comes, God came to the kings of Israel, Solomon, king of Israel. He comes to him and he says, all right, so here's the deal. You are precluded, you are forbidden from collecting horses. What would horses do for you if you were a king in that day? It would make you mighty in war, okay? I want you to think cavalry versus infantry in a day in which there are no guns, no bullets, no artillery, no planes, no drones, no tanks, no nothing. Horses were the deal, man. And more than that, chariots were the most advanced technological thing you could have in warfare in that day. They're pulled by horses. They presuppose horses. And so what did every wise king everywhere in the world, but in Solomon's part of the world too, do? Collected as many horses as they possibly could. Except, of course, for the king of Israel. Oh, no, wait. What did we read in chapter 9? He built whole cities for his horses and chariots. He located them strategically, defensively throughout the land. If you ever go to the Holy Land with us, one of the places that we go is to the city of Megiddo. It is a really strategic location in the Jezreel Valley. And what do we see at Tel Megiddo? Well, one of the things we see are Solomon's stables. Uh Uh-oh. What else were the kings of Israel forbidden by God to accumulate? Wealth. Gold and silver. Agricultural wealth. What does that do? Well, it makes you mighty in war. I mean, it's comfortable, but really it's about power. Why do I say that? Because, I mean, if you're really wealthy as a king, you can have a standing army at all times. If you're really wealthy as a king, you can buy somebody else's army to come work for you. If you're really wealthy as a king and some army comes and it threatens you and you kind of negotiate a deal, you can pay them off and they can leave and you'll be fine. Get the idea? So what did every wise king everywhere do? They accumulated as much wealth as they could possibly accumulate. They stored it up, they stored it up, they stored it up, they stored it up, of course, except for Solomon, king of Israel, because, no, no, he does that too. Bringing in shipments of gold, creating storage cities, also strategically located throughout the land. And for what reason? To just store up all of the abundance of all of his agricultural profits and produce. It's it's remarkable. 
The people of Israel, as exemplified by their king, were forbidden from marrying outside of the Israelite nation. But what did every wise king everywhere in Solomon's day do? Well, they would form political alliances with the kings of the nation surrounding them. Why? Because they wanted to secure their peace and trade. Economic benefits, security, safety, all of that stuff. And they oftentimes sealed the deal by marrying the daughter of the other king. You get the idea? The idea being, okay, my father-in-law wants me to prosper. My father-in-law doesn't want to attack his daughter. You know, he doesn't want to do that to me. It buys peace between the nations. All right, well, Solomon wouldn't do that, would he? Well, actually, yes, he would. Did you read 1 Kings 9? Because in it, his wife is referred to twice as the daughter of Pharaoh. So what did he do? He made a political alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, down to the south. And in doing this, he secures not only a lot of trade with Egypt, which would be really, really nice, but he also sealed off his southern gate. He secured his southern border because that's Egypt. You get the point? Now all he has to do is worry about the north and the east and the west. He lives according to the wisdom of the world. Israel, as a nation, exemplified by their king, is to be a blessing to the other nations. They're to bless all of these foreign nations all around them. What does Solomon do in 1 Kings 9? What does he do to a friend? What does he do to this man, Hiram, who is the king of Tyre? This man, Hiram, the king of Tyre, has been his friend for like two decades. This man, Hiram, the king of Tyre, was his father's friend before him. This man, Hiram, the king of Tyre, provided him with all kinds of manual labor, provided him with all kinds, like generously, overwhelmingly, of materials for the building of the temple, which took seven years, and for the building of Solomon's palace, which took 13 years and was twice as large. Curious? He also gives him all this gold. We read about it in 1 Kings 9. And Solomon says, hey, you know what? As a reward for all that you've done for me, I'm going to give you 20 cities. And Hiram goes, wow, that's fantastic. It's amazing. He's imagining what these cities are going to be like. And obviously, they're going to be amazing because of all that he's done for Solomon. And by, beyond that, because Solomon is obliga- obligated by God to be a blessing to the nations. And that includes him. He starts the city tour. He gets to like, you know, city number four. He's like, I don't even need to see the rest. This is trash. What have you done to me? Solomon's like, well, you know, it's not personal. It's, it's business. Well, yeah, maybe it's not personal to you. Personal to me. The people of Israel, when they came up into the promised land, were supposed to take the whole of the land, rid the land of its Canaanite inhabitants. As of the days of Solomon, they had not succeeded in doing that. By the way, Solomon was perfectly positioned to finish the job. He could have done it easily. You know what he did instead? It's in here. He enslaves those nations. He makes them his laborers, and he uses them to build his storage cities. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Because if you're familiar with the history of the nation of Israel, and you go all the way back to the days of Moses and before, what did Pharaoh, king of Egypt, do to the Israelites? He enslaved them, and he used them to build his storage cities. Good grief. What is the writer of 1 Kings saying about Solomon at this point? He's saying, guys, he's no better than Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In fact, he's no different than any of the other kings. He lives according to exactly the same wisdom, and he's much more skillful in it. But it's the same wisdom that all of these guys live according to. Horses, chariots, wealth, treaties, marriages, no blessing, cursing. It's really something. 
The wisdom these guys and Solomon has now begun to live by is a wisdom that does not trust in God. It's a wisdom that trusts in all these other things. And the Bible has a word for that. You know what the word is? It's called idolatry. And one of the things I love about the Bible and one of the things I love about God is he he comes to us and he makes very clear what is right and he makes very clear what is wrong. And then he takes it a step further. He then says, and let me tell you what will happen if this is the road you choose to go down, which I kind of appreciate. It's not like he doesn't go, okay, you shouldn't go down this road. Oh, you're going to do it? All right, well, just go see what happens. Try it out. Surprise, surprise. He's like, no, 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 no surprises. If you do this, this is what will occur. So what happens when we worship anything or anyone other than the true and the living God? We become like what we worship. We find that all throughout the Bible, but we find it probably articulated most clearly in Psalm 115, beginning in verse 2, where the psalmist, who lives way, way, way back, says, why should the nations, meaning the nations outside of the nation of Israel that the psalmist lived in in that moment, why should the nations say to the people of Israel who worship the true and the living God, where is their God? Okay, when you look at it from the perspective of those people in those nations outside of Israel, that's a very reasonable question. And the reason is because if you went to one of them in that day and you said, hey, where is your God? They'd say, oh, well, come on, we've got to go down here, we're going to take a left, we're going to go to the temple. They'd take you to the temple, they'd walk you into the chamber, you know, like for 20 bucks, you could take a selfie with their God. He was right there. You could touch him. Not true with the Israelites, their God is... His spirit, he's invisible. Where is, where is their God? So now he answers it. And in doing this, he, he illustrates the difference. He says, our God is in the heavens. What is he saying? Immediately he's saying, our God is transcendent above all things, above all people, above all of these dead little gods. Like everything is underneath him, underneath his power, underneath his control. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Whatever it is that he wants to do, that's what he does because he is all powerful. He is remarkable. He's unlike any other God. And he continues the comparison. He says, they're idols, your gods, you people who come and ask us this question. Okay, well, their idols are made of silver and gold. They're merely the work of human hands. And as a result, they have mouths but they do not speak. You're like, well, that's unfortunate because at least every once in a while I'd like to hear a word from my God. It's not coming. If eyes, but they do not see, you're like, also unfortunate because it would make me feel better if I knew that my God could see me. Can't. They have ears, but they don't hear your cries for help, your songs of praise. If noses, he says, but they don't smell. What is he doing? He's painting the picture of a, of a thing that is no thing at all of something that is completely and utterly insensible because it has no being. It's stone, it's wood, it's steel, it's gold, it's silver, it's stuff. And as a result, he doesn't know what's happening around him, and he certainly doesn't know what's happening around you. They have hands, he says, but they don't feel. They don't help. They don't help you up. They don't slap you on the back. They don't work. They... They have feet, he says, but they don't walk, much less run. They cannot come to your aid, and they do not even have the ability to make a sound in their throat. And then he gives us the punchline, the no surprises moment. He says, you know what, guys? Just so you know, like this is how the street ends, okay? So those who make them become what? They become like them and so do all who trust in them. He's saying, listen, if what you worship, if what you trust in is lifeless and empty, 
then you will become like your lifeless, empty God, which is not good news. But the good news is that it works in the opposite direction as well. In other words, if what you worship or really who is Jesus, then you become more like him as well. And what that looks like, practically speaking, in your life is that all of a sudden you'll begin to live your life by the power of his spirit progressively. You'll do it imperfectly, but in ever-increasing fashion, like you'll grow and sometimes you'll take a step back. I get that, but you'll move forward and there's forgiveness for all of this stuff. You'll begin progressively to live your life in ever-increasing measure by the wisdom that Christ lived his life by. And what kind of wisdom is that fundamentally? It is a wisdom that trusts in God alone. He goes to the cross trusting that he'll be raised on the third day. And he is. It's awesome. It's a wisdom that trusts in God alone. And as a result, it's a wisdom that comes from God alone. And James, the brother of Jesus, makes this clear to us. Listen to what he says. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, well, then let him ask his financial advisor, you know, and then he'll get it. Maybe. It happens. God speaks through those people sometimes. Okay, so that's not what it says. All right, if any of you lacks wisdom, then let him ask his mother or father, his sister or brother, some family member, friend, a neighbor, a coworker, and he'll get it. It works that way sometimes too, but, but it's not what he says. There's a source of this wisdom. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives this kind of wisdom that trusts in God alone and leads your life generously to all without reproach. And I love it. And it will be given to him. And look, sometimes it will line up perfectly with what your financial advisor is advising you to do. And sometimes your financial advisor will say, listen, I'm going to write this up. Like I'm going to send you a letter. And in the letter, it's going to say, I told you not to do this. I want you to sign the bottom of the letter. I want you to mail it back to me. And I'm going to put it in my file so that when you come back, back to me and say, oh man, why did you let me do this? I'm going to go, no, no, no. Signature. In writing. I've created a record. I said, no, no, don't do this. Terrible idea. Not wise. Sometimes it'll line up with what your family or friends say. And sometimes they'll go, how can we conspire against this? Because this is crazy. Sometimes your neighbor will be like, right on. And other times he'll be like, Holy cow, you probably shouldn't drive a car. You know, like you're a danger and a menace to society. Like you've lost your mind. This is absolutely nuts. Guys, God will at times call you to do things that apart from total trust in him make no sense at all. At all. All right, so I'm going to give you an example. Uh, one of the things I've been doing lately is I've been reading the biographies of really amazing, famous, you know, incredible world-changing missionaries. I've been doing it because it's spiritually inspiring to me and super humbling. Like I, I read Hudson Taylor a while back and I had lunch with Sam Smith, our pastor of education. I said, Sam, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Like I'm reading this and I'm going, my goodness, this man's faith is just, it's just way beyond me at this point. It's so amazing. I'm reading right now a biography of Adoniram Judson. I'm like 76% of the way through his life, according to Kendall. And he too is amazing. 200 years ago today, he was in Burma as a missionary, which is modern-day Myanmar. And I'm just going to be honest, I don't know anything about modern-day Myanmar, but I do know this. Uh, There are a lot of other places I'd rather travel to even today, probably before that. That's just a guess. Again, it may become a vacation destination, or maybe it is, and you know, I just don't know that. But, you know, I think I'd rather go somewhere else. And for sure now, having read this book, I would not want to go to 
the Myanmar, the Burma of 200 years ago? Definitely not. But I will say this, as a parent, if you came to me and said, Tom, I'm either going to send one of your kids there or I'm going to send you there, I'd go. I'd probably die in about two weeks, but I'd go. All right, so listen to what Adoniram Judson wrote to the father of Anne Hazeltine. And he's asking for this woman's hand in marriage, the daughter of this man. He says this, he says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of wanton distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Like, who's signing up for that? Oh, that sounds like a good idea. I think I'll go talk to my... Crazy! Unless there is a God unless eternal life is real, unless within it there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be spurned, and not just for us, but for everyone everywhere, and unless this is a God you can totally trust in. Listen to what he says next. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Okay, that's where the rubber hits the road. Like on the one hand, I would hate to receive that letter because I'd just have to go, oh, now what do I do? How real is my faith? Can I go instead? I don't know. He's not asking me to marry him. He's asking her to marry him. He said yes. They got married. She was 22 and immediately left. She died at the age of 36 in Burma. Smallpox. Left behind one child, her first child. Died on the mission field little girl. She was about two and a half at the time. A few months later, she died and was buried next to her mother. God will at times ask you to do things that apart from total trust in him make no sense. Nobody's going to look at it and go, that sounds like a brilliant move. I think that would help your career. You know what? You know what? This sounds good for your family. Do that. It's not wise unless it is. It requires a total trust in God. And so after telling us that, okay, it requires total trust in God, oh, oh, that trust comes from God, James says, look, you don't have to go to Burma to figure out whether or not you have this kind of trust. He's like, I'm just going to give you some examples. Compare your life to this. 
He says in chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? So he's bringing it up. He's going, all right, we're talking about wisdom again, and it's this kind of wisdom. So who has this kind of wisdom? And it's very clear from what he says next that he's not looking for a show of hands. You know, like you're not going, you know, you're online. You're like, I think I got this one. You know, and I don't have a lot of things, but this one I've got, you know. He's like, no, no, don't, don't tell me. Show me. Who is wise and understanding among you? Okay, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness or in the humility of wisdom. He's saying this kind of wisdom shows up in the way that you live, the decisions you make, the values you have, what you say, don't say, where you go, don't go. How you conduct your life, it shows up in the humility of wisdom. And then he says, all right, so some markers. Here's what it doesn't look like when it shows up. This is what the opposite looks like. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast. Don't raise your hand and say, I think I got it. You know, I I got this one. This is me. Like, no, 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 no. Like, don't even go there because if you do, you'll be false to the truth because those are not the hallmarks of people who trust in God. Those are the hallmarks of you and I when we do, and we do it all the time, when we live in accordance with the wisdom of this world, which comes to us every day and says, guys, it's all about you and you better look out for number one because nobody else, including God, is. So horses and wealth and forbidden treaties and alliances and, hey, man, look, you know, it's not personal. It's business when you have to defraud a friend. Not here to be a blessing to anybody but moi. And if you asked me to go to Nebraska, much less Burma, I'd be like, is that the Sunshine State? Because I don't think it is. I'm sure the sun shines there, and if you're from Nebraska, my deepest apologies. But he's coming and he's going, look, if that's what's in your life, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, he says, let me, let me tell you what that is. Verse 15, he says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. And I love James, but man, is he direct. He's like a bag of hammers. But is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. I don't know that there's much worse that he could say, you know, it's of Satan. Yeah, that's it. Then I get, you know, like, that's all I got. It's incredible. If I wrote this book, it'd be like 10 times longer because I'd be trying to be nice about it. You know, he's like, no, let's just get to the point. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. There will be, don't miss it, disorder and every vile practice. That's true in our homes. It's true in our schools. It's true in our businesses. It's true in our city. And it's true in our nation. When we look at our nation right now, not from a partisan perspective, but through the lens of the Bible, which is how we're called to look at everything, including our own selves. Whoo, there it is. If there was ever a time in which we call evil good and good evil, this is it. We celebrate mental instability and we criminalize common sense. What does that bring? Disorder. Every vile practice. God's like, oh, I'm not going to surprise you with that. I'm going to tell you in advance. Go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. He creates the world, God does, and it is in a state of disorder on purpose. So that by the power of his word, he can order it. Divide light from darkness, day, night. Separate the waters above from the waters below, sky and beneath. 
Bring forth the dry ground and establish the boundaries. You see what he's doing? It's the first three days of creation where by the power of his word, he brings order. And what he comes to us and says is when you ignore my word, you decreate and you get disorder. In a life, in a family, in a city, in a world. He's like, oh man, bitter envy, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, those are the hallmarks of the wisdom of this world that says it's all about you and you'd better look out for number one because no one else is, including me, God. But listen to the contrast. James says, but the wisdom from above, okay, so this is what it looks like, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, to which he adds, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peace between people and peace between God and people. And how do we do that? We introduce people to our invisible God who, newsflash, came to us in the form of a man. What does that mean? He's like the anti-idol, if you will. He came with a mouth that has and that does speak. With eyes that did and that do see. With ears that did and that do hear. Hands that feel. Nose that smells. Feet that walk, that run. The Bible says he, he rejoices over you with singing. He dances over his beloved. And that's who you are through faith in Jesus. God's like, listen, i got a present for you. It's the greatest thing ever. It's me. (laughs) And I'm paying the price for you to have me by sending Jesus to suffer, to live, to die, to be buried, and to be raised again from the dead. Total trust. There it is. For all of your sin and everything that stands between us. And what is the wise response to a God like that? The wise response is to surrender. It's to receive that gift. And it's to analyze your life in light of the things that he gives us in his word so that we're not surprised when we end at the end of a road and we're going, oh, crud, how did we get here? Because this was looking like disorder to me. And God's like, hey, back there at the fork in the road, what he wants for you is life, joy, peace, productivity, purpose, the things that are found in his presence. So two questions and I'm done. First of all, can you identify anything in your life right now that to the world looks like foolishness, yet you're doing it because you feel like God's called you to it? Just one, like you go, yep, you know what? This is the thing. Okay. We want to create piles of those things, don't we? Secondly, is your life characterized uh, by jealousy and selfish ambition, which reflects this belief system of it's all about you and, and okay, you better look out for number one because nobody, including God, is doing that. Which is easy to fall into. That's one of the glorious things of coming together and worshiping and sitting under the word of God where we hear it and we receive it and by his spirit we, we're convicted by it. We can be free of that. That's the idea. Or is it characterized by purity, peace, gentleness, reasonableness, mercy, impartiality, sincerity, and a harvest of righteousness sown in peace because you're someone who is out to make peace. Peace between people and peace between God and people as you introduce people to Jesus because that's the fruit of God's spirit alive and at work in us. 
And that's what a wise life looks like. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you, Lord, that you, you want to give yourself to us. And to make sure that there was nothing between us, you paid the price fully and completely, once and for all, finally, for all of our sin, past, present, and future. God, you have swallowed up everything that we've piled up between us and you that we might have the greatest present ever, the gift of you. Or the gift of being able to come to you and to to boldly move into your throne room in prayer and to know that we have the the hearts, not just the ears, the eyes of our dad. We have his heart. Lord, to know that the day is coming when we will stand in your presence and see you and in that day complete the transformation that is to begin in this life in which we grow in, in increasing likeness to Christ. Lord, you come and in yourself you offer to us everything that we're looking for and everything and everyone else. God, humble us before you. Fill us with your spirit. Live within us by your life. And make us your own. Give us faith, Lord, for whatever it is you have for us. Today, this week, moving forward. Let us be wise in the way that we live and live in such a way as to show the world that there is a different wisdom. It is greater, it is higher, and it is worth living and even dying for. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.